Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 22, the one about marketing agencies, the Clubhouse app, new mics, and the Mandalorian. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to another episode of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. We are here as always, to keep you up to date with the latest news, tech, content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. My co-host is a man on a mission to demystify digital marketing. Do you know why I know he's on a mission to demystify digital marketing? Because over the space of the four weeks that we're currently in, this man is putting out 40 episodes of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast. I give you the irrepressible Mr. <laughs> Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you so much. And what a pleasure it is to spend more time with a man who is also on the mission to keep marketing simple, the voice of the Marketing and Finance podcast and the host of the Roger Blog video series. I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Oh, thank you, Pascal. And here we are with another episode. I don't know where time is going. The weeks are racing by. And this this combination of, of marketing trivia, marketing films, marketing tech, it's just it's just an absolute pleasure to talk to you about it. So let's dive straight into the news. And this year, Roger, COVID-19 has fast-tracked many brands' digital plans, in particular for L'Oreal, who recently announced that they achieved in eight weeks what had previously taken three years. Wow. Google Pixel is hosting an online treasure hunt in which movie fans can win film downloads to promote the ease of downloading and watching the films using a Google Pixel with 5G. Well, Cadbury has changed its annual pop-up post office from which you can send a bar of chocolate secretly to a loved one. This is now turning to a virtual post office in the face of the COVID-19 challenges. Expect car brands to launch half-baked marketing in the rush to the electric car. Consumer demand for electric cars is about to turn a dramatic corner, but how many car brands will have a real story to tell about innovation? About consumers, Roger, Brits are known for their love of queuing, it would seem, real or virtual, according to a poll by Uswitch. 24% of online shoppers would be happy to wait virtually for 65 minutes in order to save £200. Not sure about that, Pascal. Old Spice, the line of male grooming products by Procter & Gamble, is rolling out the world's most ridiculously long-lasting white elephant game on Instagram. And Lidl is making fun of the cliché traditional end-of-year advertising with a campaign moving away from cutesy characters in favour of proper Christmas magic in a form of cake and gin. (laughs) And the BBC is positioning its iPlayer service as an entertainment destination like nowhere else in its latest campaign, which will run across social media, outdoor and television. So, Pascal, tell me, are you a queuing person? Do you like queuing? And I know that you're not technically a Brit. Well, you know, are we going to mention that the French don't like queuing at all and that we made a national sport of jumping queues? Um, I don't mind queuing when, obviously, it's designed to make, you know, the process go faster. But Denis will tell you that when I go to an airport... And you see, you know, those straps, you know, designed to make you kind of take part of a Japanese assault course. But there's only <laughs> you to go to the check-in desk. Then I am not a happy, happy guy. But um, back to your reaction. I, I just don't understand the, the benefits, the logic of queuing up virtually for nearly an hour 
to save money, what is the benefit to the suppliers and to the uh, e-commerce platforms? I'm trying to get my head around exactly why there's a reason for it. Now, I suppose if it's a telephone, and, and let's face it, we all have to phone up utility or or car um, companies, don't we, from time to time. We always have the press with this press one for this and press two for that, and we will be with you, but we're experiencing greater than normal phone numbers, and uh, we'll be with you as soon as we can and all that stuff. But why why do you need to do it in an online environment? It's all automatic, isn't it? Can it just not happen instantly? So you've got two, I suppose, two angles. It's a PR stunt for mm-hmm. Uswitch and some of the you know online retailers, or it is something that they've been thinking about with regard to almost phasing the number of orders coming through and phasing the number of customer inquiries, whereby you get almost like a money-off voucher if you're prepared to wait a little longer. Yeah. It's 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 very strange. I'm and I'm definitely not a queuing person, but I'm 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 I'm, the, I'm like you. I'll turn up at the airport and I'll see two check-in queues, and I'll get into the shortest one, and then the longest one will start going faster. So I'll jump into the longest one that was now going faster, and then the one that was going slower but shorter originally will will speed up. And oh, do you know what it's like? You you, you always end up picking the wrong queue. What about electric cars then? Because obviously the government have recently announced, the UK government are saying that by 2030 it's going to be illegal to to sell petrol and diesel cars. My initial reaction to that was that they haven't got a hope in hell of inc- introducing the infrastructure needed to be completely electric in 10 years' time. Um, but I, I, maybe, maybe they'll, maybe they'll confound my expectations and it'll actually happen but uh the electric cars that i'm seeing uh there's nothing that excited about them is that what this this uh, news report's saying it's just that well they're, they're a bit mare really I think it's uh, suggesting they second too long, Roger, mm. and that you know mm. um, the consumer base and and all of us, we got excited by the innovation, we got excited excited about you know the um, the narrative around the positive impact to the environment and so on, but it's just taking too long, and it's still very pricey, uh, and you back to you know essentially everything is overshadowed by the kind of negative press around you know charging points around obviously access to the vehicles and so on and so forth. And and I just feel like maybe you're right, you know, A, they've missed a boat. And if they're just going to go ahead with, you know, the um, kind of traditional form of marketing without actually telling a stronger story, it might just not hit the mark. Yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll have to wait and see. I mean, a lot of the electric cars or the hybrids that I've tried out, I quite like. I like it. It's almost a bit weird driving a car that doesn't make any noise. And, and I guess if you're a real sort of um, petrol head, you're going to miss that revving up of the engine and the sort of screeching and all of that sort of thing. But I guess we've got to think about the environment. And, and the last thing I wanted to ask you about from this week, the news, Pascal, is this positioning of the iPlayer, the BBC iPlayer. And their new strap line is like nowhere else. It's an in- it's an in- entertainment destination like nowhere else and i'm sitting here thinking well it seems very much like netflix to me or amazon prime or or disney plus so what exactly are the bbc doing which you can't get anywhere else other than exclusive content i guess 
fascinating, isn't it? Because they, they had a good, good foray with BBC Sounds. I really liked the execution of, of that one, Roger Emerson, I thought. Because, you know, ultimately, particularly younger audiences, uh, I would imagine this is BBC are just old and mm. established and what the parents are watching, therefore I won't do that. But I think with regard to BBC Sounds, you know, they've done a very, very good job. Uh, I think I'm intrigued by their foray into Britbox as well. Yeah. And what they're trying to do there, but in terms of you know being like nowhere else, I think it's a really quite a grand claim. So, are they going to bring things like AR and VR? Mm-hmm. What about gaming? What are they mm-hmm. doing about you know all manner of uh, content consumption, but also content experience? Uh, I'm intrigued. I look forward to seeing what they're going to do, but um, I'm not sure about it. Yeah, I think again the the, the iPlayer. I, I, I tend not to watch much BBC these days, Pascal. It tends to be MasterChef, MasterChef the Professionals and, and Doctor Who, and that's about it. And every year I have that debate with myself as to whether it's time to actually let the licence go, you know. But uh, again, we'll, let, we'll, we'll wait and see. Maybe there is something really exciting on the horizon, and content is what they really need to focus on to make it work. And talking about content, shall we move on to our content spotlight section. In the content spotlight section, Pascal and I bring to the table an item of content, could be a video, a podcast, an article that we've seen during the week. Now, neither of us get advance notice of this, so it's always going to be a surprise when we reveal our content spotlight. So, Pascal, you go first, please. Thank you very much. So this week, Roger, I'm going to bring to the virtual table an article I spotted on Mm Forbes.com. The title is as follows, Why Video is More Important Than Websites for B2B Marketers. This article was written by Shema Haider, who's a CEO of Zen Media. In fact, it's a bit of a repurposing of an interview that she had with the CEO of Biteable. Now, Biteable, as you may recall from one of our marketing tech and app segment, is that online platform that allows you to create kind of short-form teaser content, bite-sized video content for social media in particular. So, of course, the CEO of Biteable will have a thing or two to say about the power of video, but their conversation was very interesting about why is it that we have this disconnect between a high level of consumption when it comes to video content, but a lower level of execution when it comes to video creation, in particular in B2B. So they're having this conversation that she's uh, transcribed, you know, very nicely for us. So she's asking, you know, Brent Chodoba, who is the CEO of Biteable, why are we in that situation? And he reflects on it. He shares, obviously, his experience to date and talks about two perceptions and one mindset. So, so the thing about particularly B2B uh, marketers, there's still that kind of perception that um, making video is expensive. And that arcs back to, of course, that many years ago, making video was indeed expensive, particularly for you know the B2B um, sector. So perception number one, making video is expensive. Perception number two, video making video is time consuming. So already you are, you know, you have that to kind of combat. Then the third one, which is more of a mindset, is really the fear of creating something of poor quality and therefore being judged by your peers. So you said once you have those three things kind of uh, highlighted, you can start to look at the perception 
it's not expensive as, as it used to be. It's not as time consuming. And when it comes to the fear of quality, you've got to tell yourself a different story. And for the B2B marketers, tell your kind of masters and seniors that you have to really move away from this image of the long form costly video type of endeavor to something whereby you know it's much more short form and it's a lot more disposable and there was a lovely lovely explanation from from brian which is the idea of think of your videos as disposable as your powerpoint slides which i think is a lovely lovely image and i, I will uh, ask for your reaction in a moment what it does agree though is that so we can deal with the expensive and the time consuming perception the fear of fear of poor quality is is a real one and we can start obviously talk ourselves into thinking more short form and more obviously a disposable content but there is certainly a sense that you know people can get overwhelmed by the number of platforms out there trying to obviously make life easier biteable is one but I think you know you and I have mentioned quite a few um, different options on marketing tech and apps, uh, and I think part of what people need to start to acquire as a skill set is to be able to make a decision and then delve into that platform. So sometimes what we have is a tension where people are overwhelmed by the number of, of choices, but because they only try them superficially, they are underwhelmed by the result. And I think you have to commit to one platform or two. I'll leave you with uh, a final kind of um, uh, element of this um, article, which is this idea of you know, the title video more important than websites and at, th at first i thought it's a bit of a clickbaity article or is it something that you know i'm not i'm not going to agree but actually it's more to do with again this perception whereby video will begin your customer journey the reason why people go on your website is because of video content the reason why they stay is because of video content and the reason why they're going to take action is because of that video so when um thinking about 2021 in particular roger b2b marketers make plans for the future yes of course there would be many conversations about the website and the website experience but proportionately there now should be more conversation about the video content I absolutely agree with this. And yeah, we can discount that it's very expensive. Yeah, 10 years ago, when I did a really successful video marketing campaign, I got no change from 100 grand. I could do the same campaign today, probably for a couple of grand, uh, by replacing all the printed material that went with the DVD, for example. And, and, and yes, it's not as time-consuming as it used to be, because literally we can edit we can shoot, edit, and do it all on our phones or mo mobile devices. And and there is this perception, I guess, of the quality issue. Now, you know, you often say it's the high-ups in organizations that sometimes complain or, or don't want to produce bad quality content. I, I do find it amusing, having been on so many Zoom calls over the last few months, that it's often the high-ups in these organizations <laughs> that are absolutely the worst coming across on a Zoom call, you know. Their video is usually standard definition because they're using a webcam on a beaten-up old laptop that's years old. They haven't got a microphone, so the sound's rubbish, and they're probably sat with a window behind them so that all you can see is a sort of ghostly silhouette. So maybe if these people had a few lessons in, in learning how to take decent video for a start, but delegate it to the younger staff or hire 
videographers to do it for you. You know, yes, 10 years ago, you might have taken on a marketing agency to make you a video or a video agency to make you a video or a film company to make you a video. But now hire yourself a videographer. It's that important, isn't it, Pascal? It, you really would need to consider if you're a B2B company that it's worth having somebody full time putting this content together. And, and if you have somebody working full time, they'll get to know the brand, they'll get to know the messages and they'll get to know the customers. And therefore, they can start to create the content that really focuses on engaging those customers. And, and I would agree with what you said about videos almost as disposable as PowerPoint. Um, but you probably have in the same way as you have a series of PowerPoint decks or, you know, some people have one gigantic PowerPoint deck that they will then go in and create subsections of. You know, you could create a bank of video material and select the bits that you need for the circumstances, whether it's an online seminar or whether it's a pitch to a client or whether it's a one-to-one -one meeting. You can get this content put together and then point it in the right direction. And I think the, the example that um, Brent, you know, the CEO of Byteable was mentioning is the idea of if you have a particular campaign, you're targeting a very specific client, go on that platform, Byteable is one of many, and quickly change the text and then republish the video so that by the time the traffic goes to your website, you are on message and on target. And I think it's back to this idea of, you know, really, really training the mind to think like that as opposed to your example where it costs thousands of pounds or dollars to create that video. Therefore, you're going to keep the same video for the next two years. Mm, absolutely right. No, it's it. We, we, we hear this term snackable content now, don't we? And again, you can put together remarkably good video on relatively inexpensive devices. And all you need is a keen creative eye, a keen creative eye like you have for a good angle or, a, you know, fr the framing of a shot. And it's, it is very easy to make it look super professional. Not very much so. Right. Thanks very much for your reactions, Roger. But I'm intrigued. What have you got for us this week? Okay. I mentioned agencies just then. And, and this week, I'm, I'm actually going to draw your attention to an article about how to work with marketing agencies. Now, this article is written by Larry Alton, and it's in Small Business Trends. It's, or it's on Small Business Trends, the website. And I, I was having an argument the other day. Well, not an argument, Pascal. It was, a, it was a, a reasoned debate with an old colleague about how hard it is to brief marketing agencies and how often when you brief a marketing agency, they, they then come back with the pitch whether it's for an advertising campaign or a video like we've just been discussing, or whatever it might be. And there's always that feeling of utter despondency when they don't hit the brief and you think their creative is pretty poor and, and you get disappointed. So this article caught my attention for that reason because it was saying 10 tips for working with a marketing agency. I thought, okay, is this going to actually help inform people how to make sure that they don't fall into that trap of being disappointed if they think the marketing agency doesn't deliver. Now, when I read through the article, I thought, you know, it's it's probably a little bit lightweight, or at least it's pitched at, a, at quite a high level, because I agree with all of the 10 things which are said within this article. But actually, the reason I'm, I'm bringing this article to the table is I think that it could have gone a lot more further into the argument. So very, very briefly, 
And again, some of this sounds like the bleeding obvious. Now, the 10 things that they're saying how to work with a marketing agency. Number one, choose the right partner. Well, yeah, okay, <laughs> that sounds obvious. But I suppose, yeah, is it, is it a, do they, do they specialize in video? Do they specialize in advertising, TV advertising, digital advertising, whatever it might be? So make sure you choose the right partner. Set expectations early. So know what you want them to achieve. Be transparent. Number four, establish terms for communication. None of this is making you sit up and thinking, well, I've never thought of that, Roger. Um, <laughs> number five, remain clear and concise. Number six, trust, but verify. That's quite an interesting one. Number seven, listen to communication. Sorry, listen to expert recommendations. Eight, get to know the whole team if you can. Um, <laughs> I mean, some marketing agencies are accused of putting forward their high ups and their extremely top talented creators in the pitch. And then you never see them again and you just end mm. up using dealing with the juniors going forward. But maybe that's a myth. Um, nine focus on outcomes and number 10 remain flexible. So there's nothing that I've said there that you wouldn't have thought of already, Pascal. And that's probably the point that I'm trying to make because I think that one of the biggest issues that companies have when they deal with marketing agencies is that they uh, they suck at briefing the agency as to exactly what they want they'll they'll go along saying here's our product and we want an advertising campaign to support that product or here's our service and we want a video campaign to devote to to promote that and then the agency go away they come back with the pitch and everybody's disappointed and the reason is it's not because the agency isn't any good it's because you didn't brief them properly you've got to go into the agency and you've got to make them aware entirely as to who your target market is why you're targeting that market what your product is how it solves that target market's problem and then tell them what you want the campaign to achieve do you want to get more sales? Do you want to get more revenue? Do you want to get more people to sign up for something? Be specific with the goals and then tell them the communication channel that you're using. So advertising, TV, video, whatever it might be. And if you give them all of that information, then they can go away and do what they are paid to do. And that's be creative to create the creative execution of your brief. The problem is a lot of companies, and, and Pascal, I'm holding my hands up here. I've done this in the past. You go in with a half-hearted brief that doesn't include all of that background information. And what you'll find is the agency sort of have, have to, well, we don't really know exactly who the customer is or we don't exactly know what the goals are. So they make it up. Sometimes they don't want to come and ask you because they don't want to highlight the fact that you've been inadequate, inadequate in your briefing. So that's why the pitches often often disappoint is because it's your fault. You haven't given them the meat that, to give them the uh, creative um, impetus to come back with what you need. So I would have, if I'd have been writing this article, I would have said, yeah, all of these things, number one to 10 are what you would expect. But number 11, and let's turn the dial right up to 11 in the words of our one of our favourite films, Spinal Tap, all the way up to 11, make sure that you brief them properly and that's do all the background work and then let them get on with their creative job. 
Do you know, as I'm listening to you, I've got all this memory flashing by from my kind of, you know, mind, eye and theater of the mind in terms of all the many, many meetings uh, I've, I've kind of sat in on both sides, by the way, of the fence, um, Roger. I'm thinking, you know, so when things didn't go well, you know, what was, you know, the thing? And the thing was always that first meeting. It was always mm. that first meeting. Mm. And, and I think for me, you know, when I look back to some of the things I could have done better, what would have been to say to the agency, I'm not quite there yet in my, in my thinking, or I wish I'd been able to prepare better for you, but you know, almost kind of you know, let them know that there are some gaps in in the um, kind of information you're providing. And, and sometimes that allows them to say, well, I'll tell you what, you know, we know you're, you're under pressure of time and you've got busy days and so on and so forth. So shall we organize a workshop where we are only going to focus on your audience, the audience behavior and buying behaviors and that kind of things so that we can fill those gaps for you. And what is nice about doing those workshops, I found is that this is how you can also build the trust because that article uh, mentions trust, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. of the 10. Yeah. But how, how does that, how do you do that? I mean, in particularly if there's you know, people that you've worked with before, because within that, I would argue, in number 12 potentially, Roger, would be to really speak about working preferences. Because Absolutely. I've been in a situation where uh, th there was an agency that was working a particular way and that wasn't fitting with my client and vice versa. So actually to be honest about working um, preferences and practices is also, I think, part of how you're going to get, you know, this project team that is brought together with a common goal to, to work with each other. Um, so I think, yeah, there's this element of self-awareness and, and honesty on the client's part. And then back to you were saying, which is you know tricky because of course you are on the supplier side, which is to let the client know when there is insufficient information to come up with a result that is likely to be um, satisfactory for them. Yeah, the predominant reason why you hire a marketing agency is for their creative abilities. It's not their job to do the strategy for you, unless of course they are an agency specializing mm. in strategy. But if it's if you're looking for creatives. That's their job, to be creative. They are not going to do the strategy for you. And if you don't have the strategy to tell them, then they're going to execute the tactics that will, in a way that will disappoint you. And I think that's the clear message for me out of this article. I was going to add, sorry, Roger, um, that there's an additional element unique to what we are going through, which is, of course, these sessions with the agency, whether it's during the appointment phase or during delivery, will take place online. Uh, and I think also as a client and as a supplier, we need to kind of also look at the dimension of, you know, where message can be distorted, be misunderstood uh, because of communicating via a video call. I think that could be an additional dimension to think about as well. Absolutely right. So another couple of great pieces of content this week, Pascal. Thank you so much for your reactions to mine. Shall we move on to marketing tech and apps? In this section of the show, Pascal and I bring to the table two apps or pieces of technology or platforms, again, that have caught our attention in the previous week. Pascal, what are you going to 
hit me with this week? So, Roger, I'm going to depart from the, the world of digital and virtual. I'm going to have some physical items to talk about today. Uh, in a way, inspired by you know our session when we spoke about the production process for the Two Geeks and Marketing podcast. And uh, I have with me in my possession, like most you know, self-respected um, um, kind of video marketer, uh, a silver briefcase. And in that silver briefcase, I've got items, kits for audio and video recording. And this briefcase has now been called the briefcase of despair and disappointment. <laughs> there is something that uh, I, I can't understand, which is unique to me, is that the number of microphones I have purchased in my life that simply do not work or disappoint is quite staggering. Uh, it is now an ongoing joke with my, um, ed our editor, Tim. You yourself have been on the receiving end of you know, my cries of despair as I buy something brand new, I get excited, and somehow it's just not quite right for me or simply doesn't work. I'm just jinxed that way. However, there are two pieces of kit that I'm very, very pleased, and they've been surprisingly very useful for what is essentially a quite inexpensive kind of investment. So I was reflecting a lot about my customers and their work moving forward and the fact that 2021 sorry, is going to look very similar to what we've done this year, which is a lot of video calls. I work a lot with um, B2B clients who have to deliver sometimes quite long presentations or longer you know, coaching sessions. And comfort comes part of our deliberation. So the first piece of kit that I want to mention today is a headset that does an amazing job to remove or reduce background noise. And this is from a company called Sennheiser. And it is really their kind of reasonably well-known well PC8 USB headset. So PC as in the computer, 8 as in the number, and then USB headset. And it kind of fits very, very nicely um, on your head. It's designed for long sessions, but also, as I mentioned a moment ago, it has a kind of inbuilt filter for background noise, which if you add on to that, Zoom also has a filter for background noise. You can end up with a very, very nice sound quality. And indeed, sometimes for convenience, I've used it for uh, podcast when I'm, when I'm a guest and the host always compliments me for the sound quality. Now, like any pieces of kit, you have to do a bit of trial and error to know the position of you know the mouthpiece that captures your your voice. But um, a nice nice bit of kit to have for uh, again, you know, people are going to be working a lot on the kind of the online learning and online coaching environment. The other one, which is something that I've looked at more recently, this is from a company called Rode, and this is their famous Wireless Go. So, uh, sorry for our podcast listeners, because I'll be showing a picture for our video users, but this is essentially the kit. So you have a uh, receiver, think of it as a microphone, and then you have um, the sender, which is essentially what links into your, your computer. And what you can do, therefore, is literally clip on a lapel mic, plug it into you know the uh, the sender. So I got that wrong. Then link the receiver to, into your laptop, and you can move around. You can pull away from the, from the laptop. You can almost have different sets setup where you can go to the whiteboard, then go back to sit down and do something very interactive, very animated, without losing the quality of the sound. Because of course, you know when we record the uh, podcast for two gigs and a marketing podcast, you know we have to stay reasonably static towards you know our microphone but the wireless go you can move around 
Now, when I received you know, the box, I was really excited, but I was very, very surprised by the actual size of the items. I'm going to show them again, um, Roger. And this has got the size pretty much of the After 8 Mint. And <laughs> now I'm nervous I'm going to lose those because they're so, so tiny. I'm sure you would agree. But uh, from the point of view of work and the point of view of coaching and training sessions, the Rode Wireless Go is really, I think, something worthy of consideration to add to how you might obviously create that great experience of sound and video for the work that you do. I'm a big fan of the Rode lav mics. I have several of the wire, the actual ones with wires that you clip onto your lapel. Um, now, funnily enough, I've been doing quite a lot of video recently, and my shotgun mic that sits on top of my camera has failed me on a number of occasions. You know, there's been a few times when I've done an absolutely perfect take of a video introduction or a segment for a video, you know, sometimes lasting up to five to ten minutes, and then I get back and play it back, and there's me gesticulating gloriously to total silence. Um, so I have actually recently, because I've not bought a new shotgun mic, I've been using my lapel mic plugged directly into the camera. Right. And the the sound quality of the Rode lav mic is, is remarkable. So presumably what I would do is I would plug my lapel mic with the wire into the sender of that unit you've just showed me there. That's right, yeah. That's what you would do, yeah. Yeah. And then the other bit effectively clips into the camera. Mm -hmm. Incredible. Incredible. I think I might have to put that on my Christmas list. <laughs> and you know bear in mind my track record uh, they work superbly well so i'm very very happy uh they will not uh, be included into the briefcase of despair and disappointment so my apps this week my apps this week pascal was, the first one is all is a way of standing out on social media uh, a little bit of a different way of standing out it's nothing to do with content it's nothing to do with how many times you post it's nothing to do with whether it's video or what it's something I came across almost by accident. Now, one of the downsides of social media platforms is that when you type words into them, on the whole, you just have to put up with whatever font and style of text that is their default. So on Twitter, you know, whether it's in your profile or whether it's in a tweet, it's the same font. It's what they've decided. Similarly on Facebook, similarly on LinkedIn, and similarly on Instagram. Now, I've come across a website which is called yaytext.com, Y-A-Y-Text.com. And this is rem quite remarkable because what it allows you to do is it allows you to put bold text and italic text into all of those social media platforms. And it uses some sort of um, PHP code or whatever it is. And not only can you use bold and italics but there are also several different types of fonts as well that you can use um some of it's serif some of it's sans serif and I, i've just been trying this out recently so i i can now put the heading in my linkedin profile as bold text and it really pops off the page pascal when you actually look at it you think oh that that is really striking and just by doing that you think people are actually going to notice how come his profile looks different to everybody else's and sometimes apparently it doesn't work if you look at it on an android phone now i don't know why uh, they do give you a few examples on the whole i think it's like 98 percent certain that it'll work on everything but there are some examples where 
an Android user will look at my profile and just see a load of squiggly lines, which is probably counterproductive. But give it a shot. You know, it would be very easy to go into overkill and suddenly have all sorts of bold headings and and, uh, italics here, there and everywhere. But just the odd word, you know, even if you're posting a comment on LinkedIn, if you embolden some of of your comments... It will make it stand out, and 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 I, I'm quite quite interested in this to see whether it helps up the engagement levels. The second one is again I came across this a little bit by accident as well. I was uh, one of my Facebook friends from America, Joanne Kral. She posted this question: Is has anybody tried the Clubhouse app yet? Um, am I missing out? Do I need to check it out? And a lot of people replied underneath, and I, being interested, immediately went to find out what this Clubhouse app was. And as you would expect, it's yet another social media style app. And when I read the description, I thought, do you know what? This is Anchor Part 2. Now, it must be four or five years ago now, Anchor launched as an audio social media channel. So instead of, like on Twitter, you post a tweet of up to 240 characters, Anchor allowed you to record, I can't can't remember what the limit was, a minute or two minutes of audio. And then people would reply to your audio with their own audio. And when Anchor launched this at the time, I thought, oh, this is a really good idea. But it completely bombed for one very simple reason. And that that is that you can read a tweet and a whole series of replies to tweets in the time it takes your eyes to scan the words. Whereas if you're listening to somebody say up to two minutes of of, uh, of, of speech and then 10 people replying for two or three minutes each, you've immediately got half an hour's worth of audio to listen to. And people haven't got that amount of time to spare. And so Anchor effectively had to reinvent themselves as a podcasting platform and they've done remarkably well at that and as we said a few weeks back they've been incorporated within Spotify and they're now doing amazing things but from what I can read of this Clubhouse app it's exactly what Anchor was four or five years ago and already the people responding to Joanne's original post are saying this is going to fail in the same way as Anchor failed because the people haven't got the time to listen to all of these people leaving two-minute messages. So the only reason I brought it to the table was I was curious, A, as to why a company would try to replicate a model that had failed in the past, or, you know, it's it's very possible that they think it's a new idea and they haven't done their research. And secondly, is it likely to be a bit more successful this time, or will it fail for exactly the reasons that Anchor failed? You know, to, to, to begin with, the first one I am very excited about it um, because I've been I've seen you know uh, people doing it more and more now, particularly on, on LinkedIn. But the one platform that I want to test as soon as you know we finish this recording, <laughs> Roger, is YouTube because uh, I'm putting the work in through you know you very kindly mentioned the video blog series uh, that uh, are part of the um, 40 ways to tell 2020 to get lost mini campaign that I'm running at the moment but I'm always disappointed by the lack of formatting in the description um, kind of field of YouTube you know compared to what you can do on your own blog so I'm definitely going to be looking at that one and in terms of um, what you described as anchor.fm you know uh, the return 
I think there's two things that are different. One is that listening to audio and podcasting is really on the up, whereby when Anchor.fm was released, it wasn't there yet. I think it, was, it missed it missed that that wave by a year. If it had been a year later, maybe. The other thing as well that made the, the whole kind of creation in particular difficult is that the only way you could leave an audio message was to have the Anchor.fm uh, app you know, installed on your phone as well. And so almost overnight, it would limit the number of people that could participate. So I'd be curious to see what they've done with this one, whether how uh, much easier and much more convenient it is to actually jump in and obviously leave, leave an audio message. And importantly, I think where uh, Anchor.fm, the, the, the first iteration didn't get it quite right, it was also very, very hard to edit. You fast forward, you know, years later, Roger, as you know, now they have a wonderful web-based platform where it's much easier to edit. But I think they kind of missed the audience because of that as well. Yeah. So watching brief, I think I might come back to Clubhouse in a, mm. in in six months' time, bring it back to the table and see whether it's worked. Next week, I'll probably talk about a, another video app along similar lines, which I've heard about called Haps. But more on that in the next episode talking about apps pascal i think it's time we fired up the flux cap app and headed back in time for one of our favorite sections as a show this week in history And in 1684, Edmund Haley reads the paper De Motu Corporum in Girum to the Royal Society, a document written by Sir Isaac Newton about the orbits of planets based on his theory of gravity. In 1936, Edward VIII announces in a radio broadcast that he is abdicating the British throne to marry Wallace Simpson. Right. Well, in 1960, the first episode of Coronation Street is aired on the 9th of December 1960 at 7pm, with local terms like Haychuk, Nout and By Eck heard for the first time on British television. I'm trying very hard not to laugh at that. And in 1962, David Lean's film Lawrence of Arabia, based on the life of T.E. Lawrence and starting Peter O'Toole, premieres at the Odeon Leicester Square. And in 1976, Bill Gates and Paul Allen register the train name Microsoft with the office of the Secretary of State of New Mexico. In 1993, a record-breaking mission for astronauts to repair the faulty Hubble telescope in outer space is declared an unqualified success. Well, in 1996, the United States patent is granted for the Fraunhofer Institute in Germany for a digital encoding process named MEPG Audio Layer 3, known today as MP3. And in 2002, digital media software company Roxio purchases the assets of the former Napster, including name, logo, domain name, technology portfolio and other intellectual property. By Eck, I remember Napster. I remember Napster. It was, it was one of those places you could download illegal copies of records a long time ago. And of course... It, it effectively got wiped out by uh, by all the anti-piracy legislation and uh, activity that was going on through through the record companies. And interestingly enough, Roxio was one of the earliest video uh, pieces of software I ever bought because it allowed you to rip audio CDs and rip 
DVDs and allowed you to get the MP3 or the MP4 off the discs and put them onto your PC. I've long since moved on from Roxio, but I continually get emails from them, even today, asking me to upgrade. And I'm pretty sure I've unsubscribed for them, Pascal. <laughs> Do you know, I think I used Roxio first before I moved on to Sony Vegas. Uh, I'm still, <laughs> I still have a soft touch for Sony Vegas you know, as, a, as a software. I mean, it's nowhere near as good as what you can get nowadays, but uh, I just love, you know, love the interface. But can I just say that um, I'm quite pleased with myself to move from Latin to um, Northern English to then German in one, in one <laughs> set of This Week in History. But um, wow, you know, Coronation Street, 1960. I mean, I'm not sure, but is that the longest running uh, TV program on British television, would you say? It's, it is the longest, definitely the longest soap opera. It was, it was probably the original of the soap operas. Um, and yeah, quite remarkable. And, and I, as far as I'm aware, you know, a lot of programs from the 1960s and the 1970s were junked by their respective TV companies you know a lot of episodes of Doctor Who still don't exist because they just never thought that they would need them again they never even contemplated a market for video and DVD and Blu-ray so they junked a load of these episodes but as far as I'm aware pretty much all of the episodes of Coronation Street still exist even though some of those original ones were effectively recorded live because they just basically turned the cameras on said action and and, and that was it for half an hour but yeah re remarkable that it's still going all these years later and pretty much in the same format albeit in a modern setting yeah and what is interesting at the time of recording there's some lovely tv adverts you know obviously building up to the celebration of you know the 60th anniversary where there's a lovely scene you know with that young lad on the train with his mother saying i've got an idea about this um series about people living on the street in salford called you know and, and the whole thing so you say, go back to sleep this is a rather silly idea and then of course <laughs> you know what, what's happened but um i remember the very first time i saw lawrence of arabia um uh, i was completely blown away by this film i haven't seen it for so many years. I can re I remember the film opens with the motorcycle accident that killed him. So that that was one of my memories of that. The other memory I have of that film is it's obviously in the heat of battle. Mm. I think his best friend or colleague has just been killed. And he basically raises his gun in the air and shouts, no prisoners, no prisoners. And then I assume there was an almighty, almighty battle after that. But it's definitely one of those films that I need to watch again because I haven't seen it for so long. Although I've now got in my head that remarkable soundtrack mm. actually echoing around <laughs> in my head. That's <laughs> uh, incredible. Talking about uh, soundtrack and power of sound, how about that 1996 for the MP3? I'm not sure why I'm surprised because it's almost as if it's always been around us, isn't it? And one of my kind of, uh, you know, best Christmas present ever would have been an mp3 player some stage I'm sure yeah I, I actually I would have I would have thought it was earlier than that I would have I would have said mp mp3 was back in the 80s so just goes to show when we do this part of the show you really do learn something new and I think it's a first for two geeks in a marketing podcast I think our 1684 is the earliest we've ever gone back in this segment of the show and because of that I think we should leave it there 
and move on to our creator's shout-outs. In this part of the show, Pascal and I give a shout-out to someone from our network, or possibly from slightly outside our network. They're usually content creators. So, Pascal, who's your shout-out this week? Well, this week, Roger, I've got two people that would like to give a shout-out to, but they do work together, so it does count. I'm not breaking the rules of this segment. <laughs> I want to talk about Rob Temple and Kennedy. They are the host of the Email Marketing Show, and they are also the driving force behind the Email Marketing Heroes movement. So for people that know about email marketing, you will understand that it doesn't actually always make the news. You know, social media, SEO, video, uh, podcasts always seem to grab the spotlight. But I think email marketing is something, as a practice, is where many people actually get the results. And really, from my point of view, Rob and Kennedy are on the mission to make you an email marketing hero as you can join them on their fight against grubby and scammy emails. So that's essentially you know, what they will claim on their website. So the podcast is a joy to listen to. They are very good raconteurs and entertainers, which may come from the fact that, uh, and I'll leave you to discover why um, Rob Temple is an hypnotist and Kennedy is a mind reader, but because of their kind of um, experience in stage performance and of course audience engagement, they make their podcast really, really a joy to listen to, as I mentioned a moment ago. So please, please do spend some time if you can online to check out the uh, email marketing show. Uh, you will not regret it. Well, there's definitely some grubby and scammy emails out there, so I fully support what Rob and Kennedy are doing. And they also do um, a Twitter chat. Uh, I think it's on a Thursday night. I might be wrong, and I can't remember what the hashtag is that they use, but I'll look it up and put it into the show notes because it's well worth dipping into because I quite like Twitter chats, Pascal. Um, you know, it, it's quite an interesting way of finding new people to follow on Twitter. And again, Rob and Kennedy do a really good job of making it interesting and bringing some really good content in. So great shout out. Great shout out. My shout out for this week is a gentleman called Martin Brooks, and he titles himself the Impactologist. Now, I've known Martin for a number of years, and he actually specializes in helping people do two things. First of all, to do presentations with impact. Uh, and secondly, to do pitches with impact. But I'm not shouting him out for that particular reason today, even though it's well worth checking out some of the work that he does around pitching and around presentations. What I'm shouting him out today for is it's almost like a series of LinkedIn posts that he's been doing over the last six months to a year. He's a bit of a body language expert as well. And he's, he's, big, he's almost like a student of, of how you can tell when somebody's hiding the truth, maybe lying or is uncomfortable or is overly aggressive or is passively aggressive. And what he's been doing is he's been posting snippets from news reports. So it could be Piers Morgan interviewing Robert Jenrick or um, somebody interviewing Boris Johnson or something like that. And what he will do is he'll post that video, and it might only be a minute or two, and then he'll say, do you know what I think, given the body language, this person isn't telling the truth? Or see how this person's being passively aggressive. And then he turns it round and turns it into a learn 
for, for you, the reader, as to how you could then use that technique or hopefully not use that technique if it's a deceptive one or if it's lying in your own presentations and your own communications. So these are really interesting really interesting posts they only take about a minute to watch and a minute to read and they're only on linkedin I, I, i'm not aware that they appear anywhere else and they're well worth having a little look at I, I i always have a smile on my face especially if there's a politician involved so martin brooks the impactologist and as always the link to one of his linkedin posts will be in the show notes I know I really, really uh, like that. I'd definitely be checking that out because it's back to your point about you know there's something you can that you can learn from whilst actually being uh, entertained and and I like that. I mean, it reminds me a bit of what I'm doing at the moment, which is shouting at the TV when someone is invited to you know speak on the BBC News and they're using Skype or Zoom or another, and the way in which you know they are uh, using their laptop or their phone is just absolutely appalling. So I can imagine that I will take great pleasure in watching some of those LinkedIn posts as well. Fantastic! So there were that was our creator shoutouts, Pascal. Here we are again, the best part of the show. It's time for film marketing. Well, let let me tell you, Pascal, over the last eight months, we've been locked down pretty much, haven't we, in the UK and across the world. And as a result of that, we've probably consumed more box sets, more TV serials, more Netflix, more Amazon Prime, more Disney Plus than we've ever done in the past. And probably one of the series that has made it, made lockdown more bearable has been the magnificent Mandalorian. What do you think? Oh, you're absolutely right. You know what's crazy is, of course, this was premiered in the US in November 2018, and we were quite cross with Disney Plus, us in the UK. But literally within days of the lockdown of beginning officially, then season one, episode one of The Mandalorian appeared, obviously, on kind of TV uh, UK networks. And, oh, my God, you're absolutely right. This has been something that, you know, has been a pleasure to watch. And interestingly, for the Two Geeks and Martin podcast, we've been pretty well behaved. We've not really brought the Star Wars universe into film marketing, although we could have because this year was a biggie. It was obviously the anniversary of, you know, um, The Empire Strikes Back, released in 1980. But, you know, we kind of um, believed that, you know, we, we had to stick to the rules of really looking at films past and present. But this... This is the very first series that is mentioned on film marketing, but I think it's really worthwhile. So for those of you who don't know what The Mandalorian is, you have to be a bit of a Star Wars universe geek, don't you, Pascal, to know about this? But if you go way, way back to the original trilogy, there was a character in the trilogy called Boba Fett who was wearing particularly fetching armour of a very distinctive style. Now, he didn't actually have much to say he was more of a shoot and talk later type of character, but he was definitely one of those characters that became a favourite of the children. And I think the action figure of Boba Fett was probably one of the best sellers over the years. And that piece of armour, that iconic piece of armour, effectively has formed the basis of this whole new series. Because as it turns out, Boba Fett, that original mercenary is a Mandalorian, and this series follows 
the story of another Mandalorian dressed in very similar but slightly different armor. And I, I don't know, it's set in the Star Wars universe, but it has a, it's out, to me, it has a Wild West vibe about it. You know, there's, it feels expansive. They're often trekking across deserts. There's often sort of almost gunfights that you would expect an old Clint Eastwood movie to be like. So it, it, it's very much within the Star Wars universe, but it has its own unique feel. And of course, it's a TV series. But I, and, and I've said this to you before, Pascal, but I, I enjoyed the last three Star Wars movies, the ones that have been released over the last few years. And they, you know, incredible, massive set pieces and incredible special effects. But the bottom line is I was somewhat underwhelmed by the stories and by the use of the old characters, whereas there's something just totally immersive about The Mandalorian. And, and I actually found that I'm enjoying The Mandalorian series more than I enjoyed the last three films. It's the same for me. Uh, I mean, I I was very disappointed by, by the sequels. I think most Star Wars fans were, uh, for two reasons, uh, we're not going to spend too much time talking about it, but two reasons. One, I wanted more of my heroes, uh, as mentioned to you in other conversations. You know, I, I think that our heroes were very poorly treated by the, the screenwriters. Uh, and more importantly, I still wanted it to feel like a Star Wars universe. And this is where the Mandalorian is winning because this is taking place five years after the of Return of the Jedi. And if you think about it as fans, and even just, you know, people that just enjoy the stories uh, as it is, we have watched, you know, obviously the original strategy uh, a lot, very often. So we're very familiar with, with that universe. And I think what they do really well with Mandalorian is that they're not trying to reinvent uh, the storyline of the universe. They go back to Tatooine. They show the Jawas again. They show the, you know, the, the Sand People again. And they kind of bring that. But there's an, a layer of, can the Mandalorian actually be the link and the glue between Return of the Jedi and The Force Awakens? You know, can it can kind of make that, that transition? And some of the characters are, are brilliant. And... I found myself absolutely, you know, really loving the character and, of course, his relationship with, you know, the the package, which was essentially, you know, the episode number one. And I love the way in which they've gone straight from episode one and two into the relationship with what has been called with affection, Baby Yoda. Yeah, Baby Yoda is so cute. Um, you know, I, I can imagine that there'll be quite a lot of Baby Yodas on Christmas lists this year. Um, and and again, it's it makes me laugh that the the way they execute the the puppet, I guess, them or the Muppet, I don't know what you would call it, um, is is remarkable. It's cute. It's endearing. It 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 conveys emotion, and you know, it, it does all the things that the big Yoda used to do, but. Obviously, it's at an earlier stage in its development, so it's not quite a master of the force yet. A remarkable performance by the actor playing the Mandalorian, because again, he is wearing this helmet all the time, because it's part of the Mandalorian culture that they don't take their helmets off almost ever. And yet, he still managed to act his socks off, even though he's got this bloody helmet on. So, yeah, absolute kudos. And, and what I also believe is that for a series which looks so gorgeous and so expansive and so big, I think that actually they do it on quite a, a tight budget in Star Wars terms and on remarkably small sets. So they're employing quite a lot of trickery to create that 
grand feel. What I like about it, you know, back to, um, you know, the use of practical special effects. So, you know, Baby Yoda, even though we know, know his name, but I won't spoil it in case you're, you're, you're catching up on the series, because at the time of this episode going out, we'll be reaching the end of season two, which I want to talk to you about. But ultimately, a lot of practical effects, which acts back to the original trilogy. And, and the characters are just so likable. And you're right, you know, they've they kind of gone for that kind of um, Western kind of uh, feel about it, whereas obviously the original trilogy has had more of a kind of a... Um, sword and sorcery um feel about but that's exactly the way in which you know george lucas wanted the, you know, the crossover of different universe on the subject of george lucas i was reminded by an article that he came up with a concept of a tv series in 2009 that was meant to be i don't know if you remember we got all excited about it but it was meant to be actually following the squadron of uh, of x-wing pilots and that kind of trials and tribulations across the universe but um as ever with George Lucas, his vision was such that it was deemed to be too expensive. And I remember actually some critics saying, but maybe Star Wars is too big for the small screen. And I wonder whether the Mandalorian has proven that theory wrong. I think you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right. It's It, it works for me remarkably well, and uh, I, I want to see more of it. Uh, I love, as you've said, the, 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 the Easter eggs that he keep putting in there, you know, the, the references to characters that we know and love i had an incredible geek out moment where i saw a tie fighter take <laughs> off you know i've always wondered how tie fighters can land because they just don't look as if they've got any way of landing but wow the wings come sort of slope off to the side some of the guest stars we've had <sighs> carl weathers who originally played apollo creed in the rocky films back in the 80s He's a character, and he almost he also directed a couple of the episodes. And I think this week Michael Bean turned up, and he was originally in Aliens back in in uh, nineteen eighty six. So they're they're really going through some sci fi pedigrees here. They are, and I think you know you're right. They, they are really well. It's not their job, you know, to entertain people and draw mm. us in. Um, and once again, a lot more than the sequel. But this is the last time I mentioned it. But you know, <laughs> you, you had the, the team for it. You know, you had John Favreau who's done wonders with the Marvel Universe. You have Dave Filoni, who's been working on the animated series, obviously, for Star Wars. Kathleen Kennedy, that will need no uh, introduction. And Colin Wilson, who's worked on Avatar and the Jurassic um, World franchise. So, but what I what I really like about it, particularly you can watch it on the, a lot of the making ofs on Disney Plus. They they really, really respected, you know, the work of George Lucas, but also understood the world. And what they're using really is the Mandalorian and essentially the quest to one keep Baby Yoda uh, safe, but also understanding why you know the um, the Empire is is after Baby Yoda. But they are essentially taking us through the the world, and they are almost taking on the the, the mental of C-3PO and R2-D2, so the two droids, we follow them, and as a result of which we discover, you know, where we are in a galaxy far, far away, no doubt, but um, I, I just think that the crafting of the story, and you're right, you know, the, the which the user sets and so on, is is exceptional when time and money will be, uh, you know, limited, you know, the, the, particularly where they have to m make it a series. Now, at first, I wanted to ask your reaction. At first, I was a little annoyed that I couldn't binge on The Mandalorian. So, you know, when they released it late for us in March, then we had to wait every Friday after that. I must confess, now into season two, I look forward to that weekly treat. How do you feel about it? 
Do you know, I had this conversation with my wife recently, and I think we've become spoilt by our ability to binge on box sets. But I've always, always been a fan of the cliffhanger and having to wait a week and to have that week to think about, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? Where's the plot going? How are they going to get out of that tricky situation? You know, I, I was brought up on Doctor Who and the the weekly cliffhanger was at, at once frustrating, but also incredibly exciting. And I think I'm probably like you. I like that weekly injection of Mandalorian fun. It doesn't often finish on a cliffhanger, but it always leaves something tantalising to make you think about until the next episode. And for me, in this world where you can literally watch an entire series in one day, if you put your mind to it, I quite like the discipline of having to come back to it weekly. And the other thing I think that strikes me about this, and and we can, you know, this is supposed to be film marketing, and we're, <laughs> no, we're, we, we haven't talked much about marketing. The thing is, yeah, I think we could wax quite a lot of lyrical about the fact that it's the flagship Disney Plus pro, uh, TV show, and obviously a lot of the marketing, a lot of the the promotion goes to, to the Mandalorian, and we should take that as read. But going back to what we said about the last three films, I think that the last three films they forgot who the audience was, mm-hmm. and we know that when you when you're a marketing person. You've got to understand your audience. You've got to understand your customer and meet the needs of the customer. And you express the needs of the customer for those last three films. And you wanted them to do something special with the original characters, with Carrie Fisher, Princess, Princess Leia, Han Solo, Luke Skywalker. And they, they, they failed. They failed on that score. They didn't understand that the majority audience was going to be us who wanted them to do something with our characters, and they just went too far off in the other direction trying to establish a whole new series of characters. But I think that they've either learned their lesson or they've just got it right with The Mandalorian, is they have absolutely understood that this is what we want. And that is why you and I are sat here enthusiastic (laughs) about this programme, because they've absolutely nailed the customer brief. I mean, I was very nervous about season one. I said, you know, as a Star Wars fan, I'm going to have to cope with disappointment yet again. And from the get-go, I went, no, this is very good. Now, and in which each episode, now sometimes the story is a little linear or a little repetitive, but in the context of a series, you forgive it. Now, let me remind you that by the end, uh, you know, the end of December, we're going to have 16 episodes of Mandalorian to go back to. Bear in mind that season three is already in, in, in production. So for me, with Denise, we have a bit of a ritual now. So we watch Mandalorian on the Sunday afternoon. So I've got to work very hard to keep away from spoilers on social media. I wear my favorite Star Wars t-shirt, you have to. <laughs> I watch The Mandalorian. Then I listen to reviews on the Sparker Rebellion, where you know our friend Mark Asquith is a co-host of Sparker Rebellion, the premier Star Wars podcast, if you ask me. And what is lovely is that we, we almost relive because they, they're both, him and Gary, are so excited about the, um, the the Star Wars series and they are creating you know their own reviews. And then before I go to bed, I watch the new Rockstar video channel where they do a review and all the, the Easter eggs and so on. So literally I have like a full day 
of Star Wars, um, you know, uh, excitement and so on. But back to marketing, so that we we give something back to our lovely audience today. You may recall that I certainly was very critical of the lackluster marketing of Disney Plus. So when they they kind of released and became available in the UK, we had a trailer. And not a very good one of that. And I thought, is that it? Where's the sense of excitement? Where's the sense of event that you know we get in Disney Plus with the library of content that they were publishing? Now, fast forward to November, December, obviously uh, 2020. There was only one trailer for The Mandalorian, but I think on this occasion, it was the right thing to do to keep so much intrigue and le- letting nothing really uh, to be revealed unless you watched the series. Yeah, I think I think it, it to me I haven't I can't honestly say I've been overwhelmed again by the marketing, but I do think word of mouth now has played its part. So whilst it might have been a bit of a damp squib back in March, I think the momentum has built and it has been much more of a spectacle this time. And things like Mark Asquith's podcast and people like us spreading the word, I just think that this time it has felt more like an event. Uh, and I think you're right. I mean, back to some of the comments we made about all, all the films out there, where every time you know an episode lands, within moments you've got podcasts, blogs, and YouTube videos being published by all the fans, giving reviews, comments, critiques, and so on and so forth. Um, one that I don't tend to watch, but I know they're very popular, is people who are recording themselves watching the series live so that people can watch their reactions. It's another one, but uh, it is part of the of the ecosystems, which means that really, maybe you're right, as Disney+, Plus, if you concentrate on the production side, and do just enough to let people know it's coming, then maybe the fan base will take care of the marketing. Absolutely right. And of course, I can't remember whether it was episode one or episode two of this series, but there was that tantalizing glimpse at the end of the episode of the person that I mentioned earlier. It was Boba Fett, wasn't it? It was Boba Fett. I think it was, you know, and that's lovely because what is interesting about the way they've done this, and maybe this is a lesson for us as content creators, if you are a hardcore fan, the way you and I and Richard and many others out there are, you get, you know, a lot, you know. But if you're just a casual viewer, you're still going to enjoy it because, you know, your enjoyment and understanding of the story is not predicated on how much, you know, you, you know and read and, and, and listen about those things. And then flip what you mentioned, you know, all the stars they are bringing for that casual audience. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned, obviously, Michael Bean, but we had Timothy um, Oliphant, obviously, on the first or second one. We had Nick Nolte. In mm-hmm. season one, which blew my mind, you know, we, we had uh, Werner Herzog playing the uh, evil client and so on. So by the time they finished with season three, some of the, the who's who of kind of Hollywood and European you know, actors would, would have taken part in Star Wars. I mean, if you are people like, like sci-fi, you had Katie Sackhoff, you know, from the uh, kind of uh, Galactica uh, franchise as well. She played, obviously, one of the Mandalorian in a recent episode, I was kind of going, yeah, and then this was like, who is she? But it, doesn't, it didn't matter because we still enjoyed, you know, the, the story together. Can I quickly ask you, before we wrap up, about the music of The Mandalorian? Oh, I like it a lot. Again, it's, uh, again, it to me, it has that Western feel to it, again. So it's not, it's quite obviously not that bombastic, sort of big, 
starships having great big battles in space feel. But again, I think it suits. It just suits the uh, the style of the show. The Mandalorian is in the Star Wars universe, but it has its own look and feel. And I think the music is absolutely brilliant. What I wanted to uh, remind all of us about, which is the conversation that you and I had, obviously, uh, off-air about choosing the Mandalorian, was not just to talk about Star Wars, but also because content series or thinking series, not singles, is really, I think, at the heart of anyone's strategy. So in the case of The Mandalorian, here we are in season two with the same storyline. Nothing's changed, just the obstacles and, and the, the stakes are getting higher. Uh, and I think if I was to use that you know, as, a, as, a, as an image to take away, which is for all of us in business, and, and of course it could be B2B, B2C, there is you know, nothing wrong. If anything, you, you will do yourself a huge favor to be seen to be exploring a challenge, to be exploring uh, you know, an issue or a solution thoroughly over a series as opposed to do a one-off because I think the one-off bit of content now smacks too much to me of clickbait or that kind of tricking the SEO, playing the SEO game and so on. If you want to build trust and against your audience, you've got to be to, to be seen to be the author and the instigator of a content series, not just one-offs. Definitely, Pascal. At least 40 episodes released <laughs> twice a day over the period of a month that sort of that sort of content series i think do you know this could easily be two geeks and a star wars podcast so on that note i think we should draw this episode to an end it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about the mandalorian and i'm sure we could carry on talking for another half an hour <laughs> but thank you everybody so much for listening to this episode of two geeks and a marketing podcast it's our pleasure to bring our combination of pop culture and marketing to you every week please do subscribe leave comments and suggestions in the places where you consume your podcast whether it's the video version or whether it is the audio version until next time please do go out there and make sure that your marketing is done right I was Roger Edwards and he was Pascal Fintoni.